Hello and welcome once more to Just Plain Sense, the Equality and Diversity podcast. I'm Christine Burns, and this is my guest doing her stuff. Calpurnia Adams could claim many titles. She's a stunningly attractive young woman, a former U.S. Navy medic who served in the First Gulf War. She lived through the violent murder of her boyfriend, a film director, pop video performer, reality show star. Oh, and did I mention she's trans? Calpurnia was in Britain recently for engagements at the London Lesbian and Gay Film Festival, which is where I met her. But the challenge was where to begin. Calpurnia, welcome to London. Um, I guess it's hard to know where to start an interview with you. Uh, you're only in your 30s still. Usually you could say that a trans woman has two lives to talk about. Uh, but, but in your case, it, it feels like that we should be talking about three, with uh, obviously the one big post-transition narrative uh, concerning the, the brutal murder of your boyfriend. Um, and then there's a whole new side to you now, as you seem to be finding your feel, feet as uh, an actress and entertainer. You were born in Nashville, right? I was. I was born in Nashville, Tennessee, which is in the American South. And tell me about how you grew up there. Well, um, the the South is is very beautiful. It, it reminds me a little of when I visited Yorkshire. It's hills and trees and and country folk. It, it's very friendly and um, family oriented. But uh, as a trans person, of course, uh, growing up, I was forced to live in the male role, but I, I was a very feminine person, and that can be difficult um, wherever you grow up. And also, my father was a minister in a very conservative Christian church, which didn't make things any easier. How do you, how do you mean? Did, that, did he disapprove of your femininity? Um, they, they did. Uh, it's, it was a very conservative Southern uh, Christian church that, that very much encouraged sort of traditional gender roles. And when you deviate from that, they, they, would, um, they, they were very unhappy, I suppose, of any deviation. How did they manifest that? Did they, did they um, beat you or, or, or shout at you or what? There, there was uh, just a lot of prayer, um, a lot of, of sadness. It, it was, it was all very passive. But I, I guess, as a lot of us know, uh, passive disapproval uh, can be a, a terrible punishment as well as active physical. So, as a teenager, you then, you then went into the navy. Tell, tell me about that. Well, I did very well in school, but um, my parents were very discouraging towards education because they felt that it would lead one away from God. So, and it probably would have led me away from their church. Uh, but I, the only way I could see to get out of, of Nashville and make a life for myself as an individual was to, to join the military at the time because I had such good scores on tests that the military courted me heavily and um, they offered me any job I wanted if I would join so I chose to be a medic because I thought then I can be kind and gentle and not have to kill anyone or anything. And did it work out that way for you? Surprisingly for me, the military was a very good experience. I, it got me out of Nashville, and it taught me independence and self-reliance and strength and, and a good skill. Um, I, I really enjoyed my time and, and think it was good for me. So how did you get from the Navy to, to transitioning to a woman? I, as a child, I had always 
wished that I could have been a girl, but I just didn't think it was possible. I thought you might as well wish that you were a unicorn or something. You know, I, I just thought, well, you're, you're just going to have to deal with life as it is. But as the years went by, the feelings grew stronger and stronger so that once I got, I finished my enlistment, um, I actually served in the first Gulf War in Al Jabal, Saudi Arabia, and traveled the world and had a lot of adventures. And I think the self-confidence I gained from that gave me the strength, strangely enough, to decide to, to seek out more information to becoming my true self. And I went back home and saw my first trans woman and thought, well, if they can do it, I can. So let me give it a try. So let's just place that. How old were you at that time? Um, probably 21 or 22 so you're still very young, really. So, so how did that then progress? Because you, uh, you, you then ended up as a showgirl. I, I had always been in theater and performing. I grew up playing the fiddle in church. I played bluegrass gospel, and my mother was the church piano player. And I was always in plays and, and comedies, and, and I would make little movies with our home video camera. So I, I always knew that I wanted to act and perform. Um, one of my first, one of the first trans women I saw did happen to be a showgirl, although she worked with drag queens, but when they would wash their face at the end of the night, they would return happily to being gay men, and the trans woman I knew would wash off all the makeup and return to her life as a woman. Um, I, I just, very much adored her and she took me under her wing and I started to learn simultaneously how to transition medically and socially but also how to put my entertainment talents to use. So what stage were you at when you met Barry? Um, I I started my entertainment career um, as a showgirl at a 40,000 square foot nightclub with up to 2,000 people on a Saturday night and I worked my way up from spotlight operator to headliner eventually and, um, you know, just sort of clawed my way to the top to become a successful uh, showgirl. And by the time that um, I was very comfortably on cast and a headliner, I, I would host shows throughout the week. And on Sunday nights, it was a very quiet show with a small crowd. And that night, an Army private first class came. His name was Barry Winchell. And he was, he was a tall, young, quiet, masculine man in the, the Army. And he, he was just bewitched by my performance and um, talked to me after the show. And we started dating shortly after. So what happened then? His, his friends did not approve. His, um, he had come to the club with a small group of friends, among them uh, a man named Justin Fisher, his roommate, his barracks mate. And um, Justin Fisher apparently was um, maybe attracted to me and also to Barry. And um, when Barry and I began to have a relationship, Justin, who was mentally unbalanced, um, became very upset. And started spreading rumors amongst the other soldiers that Barry was, quote, dating a man, unquote, or Barry was gay or whatever. And uh, although in actuality Barry was not attracted to men, and um, so it, it caused a lot of trouble for Barry, which culminated eventually on the 4th of July, which is a big Independence Day celebration in America, um, 
he was murdered in his sleep by Justin Fisher and an accomplice, Calvin Glover, um, while I was competing in a beauty pageant in Nashville. So how did you learn? Um, well, this, this happened almost 10 years ago, I, I have to say. So I, I can speak of it with, with a certain distance now that a decade has gone by, but um, it, it was the most horrible experience in my life and, and still remains the worst thing that I've ever been through. Um, I learned of Barry's murder the next morning. Uh, I called him throughout the night to tell him that I had won the beauty pageant and there was no answer and in the morning I saw on the morning news that a soldier had been murdered on the base and I had a just a premonition that it was very uh, a fear perhaps I should say and and I hoped certainly that it wasn't but as information came in it turned out that that it had it was very that's been absolutely ghastly for you it, it was it was devastating, and um, I I um, I had to get in touch with my closest friend that morning, and he came and picked me up and took me back to his place, and I I essentially just collapsed and stayed on his couch for days um, as we tried to find out more information. Um, I, I was excluded from Barry's you know memorial service and from his hospital care and um, the whole process because you know no one wanted to recognize our relationship so that was very difficult and then the media began calling me his gay lover and his male lover etc which was very hurtful um, on top of everything else so it was just as as much of a tangled horrible mess as it could have possibly been the the New York Times billed you as an inconvenient woman I, um, I, the, the media became very interested in the story because it was so terribly tragic, but also the elements of myself being a trans woman and Barry being a soldier in the military. Um, the, the New York Times devoted a cover story on their Sunday magazine to it, and they sort of examined the fact that a lot of gay and lesbian organizations didn't know how to help me through the the grieving process and the legal issues at hand because they it, it would have they wanted almost to have me be Barry's quote gay lover unquote because that was easier for people to understand I suppose why there had been a crime committed and so on it it, it challenged a lot of political notions as to um, gender and sexuality and gender identification. So the New York Times pointed out that I was, in a way, an inconvenient complication in the sort of political machine for GLBT activists. How do you then set about putting something huge like that behind you? Um, I have... I've, I've you know... I, after Barry died, um, I took a year to sort of pull my life back together, and um, people people always had a lot of questions about it, both in my personal daily life and also the media in a larger sense. 
And I, I did everything I could to honor his memory, to make sure that the true story was told, and to ensure that justice was brought against his killers as, as much as possible. And that involved to me speaking to to people like the New York Times, to major um, news and literary outlets such as Vanity Fair and Rolling Stone, etc., and very carefully choosing to turn down um, salacious tabloid-type people, um, television shows that were less than respectable, etc. And I, I worked very hard to keep a level of dignity to honor various memory in, in the talking that I did. Um, a lot of people wanted to make a film or a television thing about this story, and I, I turned everyone down for a year, but finally I decided to work with Showtime and Frank Pearson, who's the head of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences that gives out the Oscar awards. And he put together a film with Ron Nyswanner, who wrote Philadelphia, which is a very acclaimed American film about the AIDS epidemic. And Jane Fonda's son, Troy Garrity, offered to play Barry in the film. So... They, they did a wonderful job in honoring his memory and producing a film that touched a lot of people's hearts called Soldier's Girl. And mentioning Jane, Jane Fonda then actually brings us on then to um, Beautiful Daughters as well. Don't, tell me about that. I, I was fortunate enough to meet Jane Fonda at the Sundance Film Festival um, through her son. Uh, and Jane and I had dinner together. And at the time, Jane had been working with Eve Ensler, the playwright of The Vagina Monologues, which is a play about women sort of learning to love their bodies and um, fight against violence that happens to women internationally. Um, Eve uses the play as a platform to raise money and support to prevent violence against women and girls. And Jane... Um, suggested to Andrea James, my business partner, and me, she suggested that we should put on the first all-transgender vagina monologues. And um, I don't know if she thought that we would actually go through with it, but uh, we took it to heart, and we actually produced a large, successful production of the vagina monologues in Hollywood. And that was, that was very inspiring. But films like that haven't made it to the UK, except at showings like this at the um, London Lesbian and Gay Film Festival. Why do you think that is? Well, um, I, simultaneously with the theatrical production of, of our all-trans cast, they, they made a documentary called Beautiful Daughters that sort of shows the, how it was put together and some of the backstory. And it's been wonderful to get that film out there because it, it allows the, the inspirational story of that event to, to reach so many more people. Um, it, it did get to travel throughout um, the United States very well, but it, it surprises me to come over to Europe and see that it's so difficult to get a hold of over here. Um, it's, it's inspired me to go back home and, and try and make a little more effort to see why that is and what I can do to, to expand the distribution. I, I don't have a lot of power over that because I'm an actress and a director of the theatrical event, but the, the film was made by other people and I don't own the film. But people can see the film on the internet, can't they? Logo, um, the Logo Network is the new GLBT-focused network um, run by MTV. And Logo has purchased Beautiful Daughters and has been playing it. And they are also showing it on logoonline.com. 
you can go there and search for Beautiful Daughters or search my name, Calpurnia Adams, and you can watch the entire film on the website. That's fantastic. You also had a hand with um, your, your business partner in, in the film Transamerica as well. Yes, Andrea James is a trans woman from Chicago, Illinois, who um, w wrote ads for many years for, for top companies for the Super Bowl and, and big events in the United States. And she and I decided to combine my, um, my acting experience and her business and writing experience to create Deep Stealth Productions, um, which produces and consults on media projects with a, an, sort of a, an eye toward um, encouraging the, the trans perspective. And um, we, we get called in occasionally to consult on various film and television projects. We were lucky enough that Felicity Huffman, an, an American actress, in uh, people here might know her in Desperate Housewives, um, she, she saw our Finding Your Female Voice instructional video, which teaches female voice to trans women. And she wanted to use us to help prepare for her role playing a transsexual woman in the film Transamerica. So she called us in and she came to our house for two months and got us roles in the film. And Transamerica went on to be nominated for a Golden Globe and an Academy Award and lots of, lots of awards that got people to notice this, this trans story. And, and that's been the sort of the, the kickstart to your own film career as well. You, you've been starring now in a in a, in a reality dating show. It, it's um, it, it's been helpful to to work with Felicity, to work with Jane Fonda, to do the other things we've done. Um, I've done a lot of short films and small television experiences, but it all builds on and the next thing and. Um, I was offered during the writer's strike. We had a strike of, of the writers in Hollywood. And during that time, as a union actress, I couldn't work on anything with a written script. But Logo said, well, what about working on a reality dating show? And I said, I don't know about that. You know, reality television has a horrible reputation. I don't watch reality television because most of the time the people on it are horrible. But I said... If, if we can do something respectable, fun, and that sort of winks and nods at the genre while still talking about some important things, you know, I'd be willing to talk about that. And so we, we have a show called Trans American Love Story, which you can see on Logo Online or through iTunes. And um, it's me with eight bachelors pursuing my affections, but um, and one of whom is a female-to-male trans man. And we, we sort of, we laugh at the genre, you know, we poke fun at it, and no one's humanity is disrespected on it. Um, Can I just interrupt you there? Because over, over in Britain, of course, we, we've seen something a few years ago called There's Something About Miriam, which was made by what I regard as one of the seedier uh, subsidiaries of, of Endemol. And there, that went down very badly because uh, the, the, the trans background of the, of the central person was kept from the men concerned, and that ended very unpleasantly. So how does your approach differ? 
Well, something about Miriam was a show that we were specifically aware of since it aired because we felt like it was a, a very negative development for the trans community in the media because it invited the audience to mock the men who were dating Miriam, to laugh at them and, and to joke that they were dating a man, quote-unquote. And I, overall, it was just very negative and reinforced ideas that we're out to trick or deceive people when it could have been such a nice platform to, to normalize you know, dating so our show, I was absolutely adamant that I was upfront about my trans history. And not only that, but the men who dated me had to be willing to date me publicly. I was not going to be a shameful secret. And they had to be willing to even introduce me to their parents and their friends on the show, which is, is quite a bold step for them as well, because I do realize that dating a trans woman carries still a lot of questions for people in the public eye. And, and how has that worked out with the men concerned? They said that this was one of the most difficult shows they've ever cast because they had to find men who were both telegenic and interesting and attractive, but who were also willing to meet those standards. And so they, they were able to find eight men who, who could do all those things. And, and we had fun. You know, we, we had silly dates on yachts with and Egyptian harems and things like that. But we also talk about the serious side of what it's like for trans women to date, what it's like for men who date us, and even for Jim, what it's like as an F to M trans man in the, the scene. I mean, one of the things that strikes me, I mean, you're camping it up, you're having a good time, you're, you're, you're poking fun at the genre, you're doing something that's fundamentally different to the way that trans people have been represented or, or used in, in the media before. And, and that brings us on to the, the, the session that you're attending this afternoon, talking about the representation of trans people in the media. How do you think that's changed over the years? Well, um, there, there have been a lot of steps, but I, I think one important development is the access to distribution that we have through things like YouTube and the Internet and digital media production. You, now you can get a, a computer with, with Final Cut Pro and a cheap digital video camera, and you can make your own film. You know, you can make your own short film or Internet video log or whatever you like and that's letting us get our stories out there. So you're saying this, is, I mean, this probably applies to all minorities then that if the, if the mainstream media are not giving you a good deal you just stick, stick two fingers up and do your own thing. Exactly. That's the advice I give. And I've spoken at universities and business conferences just generally to minorities seeking to get their voice out. You know, nothing specifically even to do with trans. I just say don't wait for someone to invite you onto their show. Don't wait for someone to give you $10,000 to make a movie. You know, get out there and, and start doing it yourself. And that'll open doors later for you to get those bigger opportunities. So, I mean, you're, you're not alone then, because there's people like Candice Kane taking a, quite an important role in uh, Dirty Sexy Money. How do you feel about that? Because she's playing, again, one of those sort of traditional roles allowed to trans people as a hooker. We are often portrayed as prostitutes, punchlines, or psychos, and more recently as the noble victim. And um, I, I, I actually got called into audition for that role as well in Dirty Sexy Money. 
And um, I think Candace is a friend of mine, and she she embodies that New York model aesthetic much better than I do. So I, I'm happy that she's getting out there and doing this. It it is a, a highly sexualized role, um, the other woman, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I, I do look for the good in it as well, and I see um, that she's one of actually the nicest characters on the show. Everyone else is, is very corrupt and venal and, and backstabbing, and, and she seems to be a fairly honest and straightforward character. And she's getting out there as one of the first trans roles played by a trans person on network television. So I, I have high hopes that Candace will maximize whatever comes of that. And how do you feel about non-trans actors playing trans parts? It, it's a difficult question because in, in my own movie, Soldier's Girl, a, a man played me. Um, in Trans America, a woman played the trans role. But I, I think we're getting better and better. You know, to go from a man playing the role to a woman, I think, is a positive step because I would rather be played by a woman than a man. And finally, I would love to see trans women being offered the opportunity to audition not only for trans roles, but even just for regular women's roles. You got there ahead of me, because that, that's the $64,000 question for your career, isn't it? Because there, there can't be that many trans parts. There, there are not, and when I get called in to audition for them, they, they're usually for as, as the gum-cracking prostitute or, or the, you know, the punchline of a joke. And my short film, Casting Pearls, which is also playing this festival, I play an actress who goes on a lot of auditions, and you see all these stereotypes that we endure. Okay, that, that brings me very neatly to my last question then. If, if you had the choice of all the roles that have been created for, for, for women, which one would you like to play? Well, I, I really loved, um, like, Angelina Jolie's role in Girl Interrupted. Um, I, I like a lot of the work that Angelina has done, actually, um, her role in Gia, um, Things like that, or even I, I really loved the film Donnie Darko, which the the role was played, of course, by Jake Gyllenhaal. But if there were a female role that had that kind of depth and an iconoclastic examination of, of of issues, I would really love to do that. Galphonia, thank you so much for speaking to me at such great length. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much, and and your your show is absolutely wonderful. I appreciate you taking the time.